Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Noelle Jenka. Noelle is a white, queer, disabled career and healing coach for social impact leaders, a yoga teacher, a gateless writing teacher, and mentor coach at the Academy for Coaching Excellence. She especially loves supporting individuals to more fully inhabit their bodies, to trust their intuition, and live well within systems of oppression and domination. She is a self-described healing junkie, a dog lover, a student of herbal medicine, and a funk and soul enthusiast. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. This episode, the organization is called Political Healers. Please join me in donating. The link is in the show notes. And as you know, any and all contributions really make a big difference. So please, please join me in donating to a wonderful cause. This conversation with Noelle is incredibly wide ranging. Noelle, when she entered the workforce, and even before that, before she was worrying about what she wanted to do with her life, she described this, what I experienced to be an angry activist energy. And she was able to see from a pretty young age, all the ways that the systems in the world and in America in particular were really oppressive with capitalism, with all the different systemic injustices, racism, We talk a little bit about climate change at at various points in the conversation. And so Noelle from a really young age was able to see all the ways that what she says, the systems are effed and that can be a really debilitating thing to take on. So a lot of the conversation we take a look at, well, how can we as an individual take a look at these massive things and not be totally overwhelmed? How can we actually even bring a level of joy and pleasure and delight into this really heavy at times work. To that end, we talk about why it's so important to not do healing work just as an individual, but to do it in community. Community is such an important and integral part of healing. And it's such an integral part of actually making any sort of sustainable change, whether it is through yourself as an individual or through the collective. All these things are way too big on their own. We we can't as one human take on so many of these different challenges. And so we talk a lot about different communities that have helped shape Noel and the importance of community. In terms of practices, we talk about different ways to become more embodied and more in touch with intuition. We talk about polyvagal theory and understanding your nervous system, how to regulate your state of being how to, you can upregulate or you can downregulate, but how can you access the way that you are showing up in your life? Polyvagal theory and understanding your nervous system are really important elements of this. We also talk a little bit about writing and how that is such a powerful way of healing and expressing and how expression itself can be an incredibly healing thing. 
So much of this conversation is focused on healing in its many forms. And Noelle is a really bright light in this space. She really helps to shine a light on the oppressed and the marginalized. And she does such important work. I'm so grateful to be in community with people like Noelle, who from a place of privilege are doing work that is accounting for the collective and making what is really much more accessible to the privileged accessible for all, for the greater good of all of people. So it's pretty important work in my estimation. I'm going to let Noelle take it from here. But before that, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Noelle has for us in today's conversation. Noelle, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. It's uh, so great to have you. And as we were saying before we hit record, uh, anytime I have a member of the RPC on the podcast, I, I know that I'm going to be in for a good one. And I'm excited to explore all the things with you today. And uh, the first thing that I would like to explore, I think if you've listened to a couple of the episodes already, you'll, you'll know what's coming. And the first question I like to start with is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Such a good question. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying this. It wasn't until like my mid-teens going to dinner at other people's houses where I learned that not everyone talked about exclusively about current events and international affairs at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, you guys talk about soccer games and what you did at school? <laughs> And that's, I mean, that's probably a function of my, my mom is an immigrant. She's from Belgium. So like we kind of grew up with this like much more expanded view of the world. And then my father is an international affairs expert and like worked in the White House and the Pentagon. Hmm. And my parents are obsessed with the news still. <laughs> and that was like a really big part of our household. Like I was watching Peter Jennings with my dad when I was two, I think. And that was like our, our bonding time. And so, so yeah, the, a lot of what we talked about at the dinner table was, yeah, what was, what was going on in the world and what was going, what was going on, you know, politically in the U S and then also, you know, in the broader sphere. And my dad's a Middle East specialist. So lots, lots about the Middle East as well. Hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. And would you say, I think there's, there's two curiosities I have. What were you like as a child, it doesn't have to be super young, but just generally, what would you say your essence was when you were younger? And were your parents encouraging of you to to be who you were? Did you feel pressure to be a certain way or anything? Mm, good question. I definitely was like a big play outside kind of kid. Like uh, I remember always wanting to try to build dams in this creek. That was a big activity for me. Uh, I was really into animals and uh, and really into art and also sang a lot. I was really into music. Yeah, the rest of my family's tone deaf. So it took a while before I realized that I wasn't. <laughs> and so it wasn't really discouraged, but it wasn't really like encouraged. It's not like I grew up in a musical family. And I think I think my parents were like, like art is great and it's not going to pay the bills, mm -hmm. you know? So like, like I, I wanted to go to art school and my parents like really tried to sort of discourage me from that, which, mm -hmm. 
you know, I think ultimately I'm, I'm okay with, <laughs> you know, there were, there were benefits to that definitely. And I still got to do a lot of art. So, yeah, I don't know. I like it. I, sometimes I wonder like, what would it have been like to grow up in a family where they're like, oh, like, let's nourish your intuition. <laughs> what does it feel like to be in your body? I mean, I can't even imagine that would have been amazing, but I think that's a, that's a big ask for that generation in general. <laughs> Yeah, and and how I, I guess you actually already answered this. So I'll scratch. But you did you described yourself a little bit as a child that you were you were outdoorsy and where where did that lead you? It sounded like in a lot of ways you were encouraged to be yourself. It wasn't like there you were super suppressed or repressed in any way. But there was also a an acknowledgement of that's those are those are beautiful things, but not going to be what actually pays the bills. So you're not going to school for that. What, how did that inform the way that you decided to move into your professional life before we're going to spend most of the conversation, of course, talking about what you're up to now and, and all the beautiful work that you do, but how did it inform your initial career steps? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like, I think, you know, like I didn't end up in accounting, right, which would have been a really practical career choice. But I like because of the influence of my my father and his work and being interested in that, I initially thought that I wanted to do international development work. And then I got had the opportunity to spend a summer while I was in college interning in Palestine in the West Bank and got to go to Gaza and got to see like I was working with one of the oldest Palestinian aid organizations and got to see kind of really up close, like what aid work looks like and like the dark side and the beautiful and the beauty of it. And one of my colleagues there really helped me understand. He's like, yeah, like our work is helping people have better lives and it's totally enabling the occupation Mm. because we're taking care of these people that wouldn't otherwise be taken care of. And I think but that was like a really big moment for me that and then being in meetings with a bunch of other aid groups kind of from all over the world they were all kind of trying to do the same thing and try to kind of competing for different resources and I was just like no thank you like this is like a really comp- like emotionally complicated space to be in I think that was also that was also my first real introduction to trauma was was meeting kids that had grown up in a war zone. And I think, you know, I was 20, so I wasn't like totally <laughs> didn't understand myself super well yet. But I think I, I understood that as a sensitive person, like that was not a good career choice for me, that that was just going to chew me up and destroy me. So and then I thought, OK, I like work in human rights in a different way. I applied to a bunch of jobs in that field, didn't get any of them and ended up in this program called Green Corps, where they pay you to travel around the country and work on environmental campaigns and they train you how to organize at the same time and it's funny I showed up to the interview I was like I didn't really like I'd never worked on environmental stuff I really didn't give a shit about the environment but I was like climate change is a problem so like I read the IPCC report the day before the interview and like somehow sold them on my ability to work on environmental stuff (laughs) and so that that kind of set me up on this path to do to do organizing work which I'm very grateful for but yeah, it wasn't like my immigrant mother, you know, was was not pleased with that choice either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and has always sort of been baffled by my career choices. But that's where I started. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I'm I'm actually intrigued. So there's there's already an acknowledgement that without your full parents' approval, you are still able to choose the career that you wanted to go go with at least initially. And I'm curious where that came from. Did you was it a self trust? Did you have I don't know a community of people around you that supported it? Like where how did you have the wherewithal even at a young age? to go against what maybe your parents were prescribing to you? Well, part of it is that they weren't really, they weren't really prescribing anything. Mm. You know, they were like sort of, I think like loosely saying, you know, like maybe don't do this, but, but yeah, they like, yeah. Like I talked about my mom being an immigrant mother, but she was never like be a doctor or a lawyer, Mm -hmm. which I'm very grateful for. (laughs) And, you know, my dad, like, always you know was a big believer in public service and like being a rabble rouser and being a rebel like and both my parents are rebels right they both left their where they came from like pretty early they met in dc and like so that and yeah my brother and i grew up rebels too so like that that's Mm -hmm. i think that was that actually was encouraged and so that was probably why i was like i'm just gonna do this because i feel called to do this i was also really angry when I was young I was just like I was like capitalism is so effed and like what are we doing about it and nobody cares and like that was really devastating to me so it just felt really important you know to try to like help you know and I don't don't agree with this anymore necessarily but I was like I was like we gotta get more people to understand like how effed everything is and like we gotta change it and I like I mean there was a point where I was like I think armed revolution is the answer like I just like I like went through the whole spectrum of like how do we change the world how do we change America I think that was the the interesting part about about working in Palestine was like oh like actually like the problems are in America like I need to work in America so that's like Mm. I don't know that's that's what I was motivated by not really by like career you know, mm-hmm. I would I wish that somebody maybe had talked to me a little bit more about that. Like, if you want to have a house when you grow up, these are some things that you should think about now. That would have been useful. But unfortunately, that was or fortunately, I'm not sure that was never my orientation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's there's plenty of stuff in there that I think we'll circle back on in, in the rest of the conversation. But I would love to hear. I know this is a pretty big question and there's there's probably a lot of things that we won't get to today that that factored into this but what brought you into coaching I, I know that around 2015 or so you you took the I don't know if it's took the plunge or you you made the pivot into coaching and yeah would love to hear what was what was bringing you into coaching at that point in your life mm-hmm. I guess I'll give like brief context so I have been living with chronic illness for most of my adult life so last 22 years got sick initially in high school. And when I was about to turn 30, I I had actually stopped working for the first time. I'd been like pushing myself to work as a sick person for a really long time. And I was like, I need a break. Somebody help me have a break and, and was able to live with my family for eight months. But I was like 30, like on my parents' couch, unemployed, like turning 30. And I was just like, I got to figure something out. Like I had been in this cycle of starting jobs that I loved and then getting sick and then having to leave. And I think I did that, I don't know, three or four times. (laughs) And yeah. And I was like, there's got to be a way to do good work in the world and not 
be sick or like there's got to be a way to do good work and heal. So I used the last of my savings to hire this coach, Jeremy Blanchard, who had been a climate organizer turned coach. And so I, I sort of knew where he was coming from and I trusted him. And and I was looking. Yeah, I, I was I was considering the idea of starting my own business as the as maybe a way to survive. And a few just a few sessions in, I was just like, this is it. This is for me. I'm obsessed with this. In part because Jeremy's coaching helped me have some really big breakthroughs pretty immediately, like asking for support. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Felt really impossible. And then all of a sudden, I was starting to do it. And I, I saw this huge opportunity to support other people with health challenges and people, other organizers, other people that did political work in the intersection of the two. And so I thought, you know, this this is a lifestyle that would allow me to support people that I really want to support, maybe not be in the movement, but be movement adjacent and also have a lot of flexibility. So when I launched my practice, Mike, I would literally do a coaching call, take a nap, do another coaching call, like get in the bathtub, like go to a doctor's appointment. Like I just, it it was, uh, it was very much like I used, you know, the three hours of energy that I had to work and then like, was just like a pancake the rest of the time but it 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 allowed me to eventually you know get a lot better mm-hmm. and again big a big question here and we don't need to get into all of the nitty-gritty details but what would you say has been most supportive for you in in your healing journey because uh, I'm imagining now you're you're not only spending three hours able able to function and then going to doctors and and going to bed being a pancake for the whole day. So, what has been really supportive for you in your healing journey? And from he, from there, then we can start to open the door on all the other beautiful topics we have teed up. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean it's definitely more of a silver buckshot than a silver bullet situation. I'd say working with Ishita, who was another guest on your podcast, was a pretty pivotal turning point for me in my healing journey, which is a few few years ago. And I think, and actually while working with her, I got a lot better and was uh, like almost 100% for uh, like a little, a couple years. And then I got the COVID vaccine and had a huge relapse. So like the last year and a half, I have been much more of a pancake, but I think more recently, what's been really supportive for me is seeing that seeing my healing as my life's work mm-hmm. and framing it that way because i think what what's something that i've struggled with off and on is feeling like my healing gets in the way of everything that i want to do mm-hmm. <laughs> which like doesn't create opportunity for wholeness at all and it's just it creates like a lot of i don't know difficult energy for me and everybody in my life and I, I sort of, I've had this sort of envy, I think, of people who really are able to really honor their gifts and really, I've been really interested in practice mm-hmm. lately. Like I know, like Prentice Hemphill and Adrian Marie Brown talk about like, what are you practicing? Mm-hmm. And and I've just, I've always really admired people who get up every day and practice the, like their gift and their contribution. And I realized like, I could just I could just do that if I accept that my healing is my life's work and then it allows me to to find joy in practicing healing every day. 
Mm. So that's been like, that's been a pretty phenomenal breakthrough. Just, just shifting my view on that. Yeah. It's been a, a huge breakthrough for me as well. There, there's certainly been many points in my life where I, I looked at healing as something that would have a completion date at some point. If and only, right? If only. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, you know, I was just watching a talk that, that Thomas Hubel gave at the Next Practice Institute. And he said, anytime that you're asking, how long is this going to take? You know that you're not actually present and that you're probably mm. efforting your way through something. And that's been a huge part of my healing journey is recognizing when I'm in the how long is this going to take energy and mm. realizing what getting curious about what that is and coming back to center and realizing that healing is an ongoing journey. There's there isn't a pinnacle or a certain spot that we get to in our life where it isn't a practice, at least that's the realization that it sounds like you and I have, have both come to. It is something that we get to do moment by moment, day by day, and there's never ending layers. And yeah, I think this is actually a beautiful on ramp into the all the things that you have teed up. Part of me wants to just offer the, the menu of things that you have with uh, anti capitalist career coaching, and then maybe coaching around queerness and disability. But yeah, I'll actually do that. So what, what feels most alive for you in terms of what you would want to discuss right now? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could talk a little bit about Yeah, what's what's up in my coaching practice right now? Yeah. Because I think it's 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 always sweet to talk to other coaches like what are what are you seeing in your clients? Like what are people bringing? what's coming up. Yeah, I think, and I can say a little bit about sort of where I'm coming from. Like I had beautiful coach training seven years ago. That's this like ontological coaching model that I love with the Academy for Coaching Excellence. But I, I saw pretty quickly that it, working with people with health challenges in particular, that just working with the mind wasn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. And so I think so I have in, brought into my into my coaching work both some somatic stuff and then a lot of intuition work, which I guess you could say is somatic, but I sort of think of it as, as more of a spiritual piece. So in my work, I am always looking to support people to kind of get into their bodies more fully so that they can more fully access their intuition. And... And and I think like part of where the anti-capitalist piece comes in is it's like, I think it can be really supportive when people are naming, like when people are naming some of their internal conversations that are holding them back, it can be really helpful to say, cool. And like, that's just internalized capitalism or that's internalized, you know, homophobia or ableism, because then it's that much easier to say, okay, that's not me. And then it creates space to say, what is me? And then the how do you get to the what is me is is by by being in touch with your intuition. But it's interesting. I had a client recently who who kind of brought me a different scenario where she was saying, in the past, like I've I've just made these kind of quick instinctual decisions without using my cognitive mind. Hmm. And I don't, and I my intuition is saying this, but I don't, I don't want to just 
trust that. (laughs) So then, so then we were looking together at, okay, so what does the cognitive mind need to know to be able to trust that? And then it's like, okay, so like, yeah, let's crunch some numbers. Let's figure out the budget. Like, let's do all the things that the brain needs to trust this, this intuitive piece. And and that was super fun. Cause I think a lot of the people that I work with are really in their brains. Mm. Um, And so it's like the, just like touching the intuition is so important. And another thing I, I, I've been seeing, and I'm sure you've been seeing this too, is this kind of moment we're in and, you know, so-called post-pandemic where people are in a lot of ways, like, I don't, I hate to say this, but like, quote unquote, going back to normal, right? Like traveling again, working in offices again, et cetera, but haven't in their bodies integrated the experience of lockdown or the grief of that or the loss and it's 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 palpable the sort of the the misalignment and incoherence that so many people are living and so it's with a lot of my clients it's felt really important to, to say you know i know you're looking for a job or you're trying to change your career or you're trying to have this breakthrough but we really really actually need to get you back in your body cuz that's like there's no like all that other stuff's going to feel really really hard or, and it's going to feel hard to get clarity on what you need if that connection isn't there. So, and that's been a fun, fun thing to work with folks on. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear, well, I, I have one reflection that I think is is really interesting. I, I don't think I've heard it articulated quite like this before that I think there's a big movement, uh, a lot of coaches I hear or thought leaders who are interested in human potential and human development talk about integrating the mind and the body. And it's usually from a place of someone's too much in their head and we need to get them back in their body. And I think it's an interesting point to bring up that some people are really in their body, but haven't figured out how to uh, enroll their mind in in the process. And yeah, I, I named that partly as a reminder to myself that my mind has a very important role it, there's nothing wrong with spreadsheets and analyzing and, and having a budget. Like those are beautiful things and they don't want to denigrate the mind. But that said, a lot of people that I have come in contact with too, that I pr- provide support to or that are close friends or family of mine very much have lived most of their life in their head. And just the the saying or the speaking of we need to get back in our body, a lot of times creates some sort of resistance or the mind will then click in like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm, (laughs) Uh, That mm -hmm. certainly has been true. That was true for me uh, at various points in my journey. So I would, I would love to hear when, if you talk about somatics and, and maybe you're working with a very heady client, someone who has, you know, they've, they've kind of brained their way through most of their life. (laughs) I love that. What, what, uh, where would you go with them? Like what would, what would getting into their body look like in maybe a conversation or may, or it could be practices that you would invite them into anything at all that you feel is relevant? Sure. Yeah. I think first I'll say that something that's, that's a learning edge for me where I'm trying to challenge myself is to bring in, in my practice, in my language and in my work with clients, kind of bottom up approaches to embodiment versus top down. I think even Mm -hmm. saying 
get in your body actually is like <laughs> you have to get in your body like that's a brain thing and yeah. and i think that that and it also it kind of maybe perpetuates the the separation the false separation that there's our brain and our body and like we have to bring them back together when actually it's just all everything all the time it's all it's all there so i just wanted to name that because that's something that i'm working on myself and so catching myself on yeah so i don't know if this is just the people that i attract in my practice or if this is true more broadly but i find that a lot of people actually in the right container have pretty quick access to their to their intuition and so you know i might do some breathing or grounding exercises with somebody or if they're sort of dorsal vagal you know like more like down regulated maybe we'll jump up and down for a while or like hit a pillow around or something and then and then invite them to to come to come back to their bodies and sometimes i i learned this from katina macris who's a pretty awesome spiritual healer lyme disease survivor using the the chakras as a you can use them as a diagnostic tool but also as like ways to connect with specific i guess i'll say essences or elements of our being so if somebody is trying to answer a question about i don't know how they're gonna work out or how they're gonna get themselves back into yoga maybe we'll ask their third chakra, their solar plexus. And so I'll say, put your hand, you know, above your belly button, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths and just ask this part of you, like what does getting back into your body look like? Or how does your, how does your body want to get back into fitness or something like that? And if, if somebody has a question about relationships, then we'll do second chakra. So, you know, lower belly. If it's something like the, this person feels like they are not speaking up, they're not standing up for themselves, they don't feel seen or heard, then we would do throat. And and Mike, it's like it's like this, like like ninety percent of the time. Wow. And and it's funny too. People will I'll invite people to 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 just observe, you know. Or notice, you know, maybe you hear things, maybe you see things, maybe you experience sensations, maybe you get a word, maybe a sound, and certain universal things will come up. Like I had a client, she put her hand on her heart and she's like, I just, I'm just feeling green. And like green is the color of the heart. <laughs> um, anyway, it's just like fun, wild stuff that comes up like that. And so that's something that that works a lot. Like in my I do a, a workshop on helping people really figure out what they want to do for work, what they want to do in their careers. And I actually walk them through some of this so that they have their mental picture of what they want their career to look like. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, let's ask your body what it wants. And sometimes there's alignment and then sometimes it's completely different. And so it's really interesting to work with folks on like what's going on there when it's really different. And then when, you know, it's it just, it creates really interesting conversations. And then I'm also a trained yoga teacher. So sometimes I just straight up do yoga with people mm -hmm. or restorative poses or that kind of thing. Hmm. 
I love that. So I'm, I want to. I'm wanting to connect a, a couple of dots right now. I think this could be a, an interesting little segue. You named that early on in your career. There was a lot of like, "What's wrong with the world?" type of energy, right? There's a lot of anger and like all the systems are fucked. Everything's broken. What are we supposed to do? I'm wondering how, like. I think with hindsight, we know in, in this current moment that our emotions and our everything really that, that is within us is is signposting us towards something. Mm. And I would I would love to hear how you could do this either way, how you've integrated that anger in your life around like the system's broken, I, I'm anti-capitalism, I'm, all the all the all the systems are fucked, basically. How have you integrated that so that it's not coming from as much of a reactive place and maybe more responsive? And how do you support folks in in doing that as well? Mm. Yeah, I love this question. I think something that I love that has been so important in my journey and that I love supporting other people with is really figuring out what their role is in supporting our human family i'll say Mm. because i really do believe there is a role for everybody and like the best way for somebody to support a social change movement might be to provide childcare for somebody that's doing something else or baking a pie for an elder you know I, i i really and i think adrian marie brown's book emergent strategy really gave me permission to lean into that more. I think I had that feeling. I mean, I think she provided that for a lot of people, right? She named a lot of things that a lot of people were feeling like we are an apocalypse and building relationship is how we're going to, building relationships is how we're going to survive. And I guess I'll say, so, so inspired by that book. And then also I'm, I am really sad that I can't think of the name of the person who created it right now, but there's a tool that has sort of a wheel of different roles that are needed in social change movements. And it's like, it's like one of them is, is healer. One of them is weaver, like somebody who brings different things together. There's one that's like, I don't think it's activist, but something like that. I'll try to figure out what it is so we can put it in the show notes and it's on my Instagram somewhere. And that sort of had me thinking, okay, like what, what is my role? And I think, and I actually got to go to, so Adrian led these emergent strategy immersions. Um, and I got to go to the second one that she led in Detroit, which was hands down the most incredible experience of my life. And one of my goals in going there was to, for myself, was to get clear on my role in the movement. And this wasn't that long ago. I think this was like 2018. And it was so clear to me being in that room for a few days that my role in the movement is, a, is as a healer. But it took, <laughs> I don't know, 15 years to to admit that. And that was after so much trying trying to, to be an organizer and so much guilt and shame, even though my body kept telling me, like, you can't do it that way. Like you, like I, you know, I, and I, I was like a, the board president of a nonprofit in my 20s and just like you know, always sort of trying to get back into activism or political work or organizing work. And then my body kept saying, no, no, no. So that that was a really big, really big piece for me. And just 
So in the last few years, I've really just been like, okay, how how do I support the world from from this role with these with these things that I have to offer? And it's been a much better fit <laughs> mm-hmm. for sure. But I mean, it's also uncomfortable, right? Like, I don't know if you've experienced this or people that you've worked with, but to say, you know, I'm a healer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that feels very it's, raw for me. Uh, <laughs> it feels, it feels alive in a lot of ways. Like I imagine that if I were, well, at first I want to name also, is it, is it Prochaska and Di Clemente? Is that the, who that you're sounds missing? right. Yeah. yeah. And the stage, is it the stages of change? I want to make sure that I link it correctly in the show notes. I have it pulled up right here. If so. I would have to see it visually to know for sure. Okay. But. Well, either way, I'll, I'll get back to it. I'll, I'll link into the show notes with, with the correct uh, attribution and the different ways, including healer, yeah. activist, organizer. Um, I, I can try to pull it up right now, Mike. Okay. And then we will just know. Sounds good. I'll I'll say on my end, I have a pretty strong feeling that healer would be where I would land as well. And also I have all sorts of narratives, internal narratives and stories about what what that means and am I really qualified to do that and, and who am I to be the to be a healer? What what am I really best at? So I, I know that it, it could be a really a juicy subject if you have it pulled up you feel free to interject yeah 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 it's what's your social change role and then deepa Iyer is the creator of it and it's experimenters frontline responders visionaries builders caregivers disruptors healers storytellers guides and weavers Mm -hmm. beautiful i also love with within your explanation I, i love the invitation that to be making a social impact it could be as simple as making a pie for someone who's elderly right it, there's a way that i i certainly given my conditioning i think about impact as this big a word that means like at scale i'm having i'm reaching thousands millions of people or whatever and it's even if that is the case impact always starts one relationship at a time and, and actually i think it starts with the self which we've already We've really been explaining in so many ways already. And yeah, let me get in touch with, I had a question in there that I am losing. Oh, this might sound like a little bit obtuse, but I'm wondering how you came to, you said it was really evident that healer was where you belonged. And I'm wondering how you came to that realization. Like what, what did it look like within you to realize that? <laughs> I was smiling because I was thinking about this the other day. Part of it was I was in this room with I think like 70 other people and all I wanted I wanted to just like touch everybody in the room. Mm-hmm. And I had like recently just started experimenting with like hands-on energy work and yeah, I, I just like had this like overwhelming desire to touch everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's weird. And the, so I just sort of started like sitting with, you know, what what was that? What was that about? And then there were also, there were some really incredible healers in that room. And part of what Adrienne had us do is she split us all up into groups and then had each group create an offering based on the principles of emergent, emergent strategy. So each group had a principle. and And then each group also had like a, 
we had created, we had come up with a list of like social change issues for lack of a better term that we wanted to work on. So each group had an issue and a principle, and then you were supposed to create something for the wider group. And there were several healers in, in my group. And I was just like, oh, like, but like really deeply committed to, to change. Like, like, yeah, like one of them was an indigenous trained naturopath. And some of the work they do is making plant medicine accessible for, for BIPOC folks that might not otherwise have access to it. Like, like just really badass people. And I was just like, like these, these, these are my people. Like, I'm not there, but I, that's where I want to, like, I want to be offering like that kind of stuff. And and just, you know, people that are really engaged in healing justice. And then the the offering that my group ended up offering was very healing focused. Although I think kind of they all were in one respect or another. And then, yeah, I think that, it, and it was, there were people there that I had never been in a room with so many so many folks who work on black liberation mm. and seeing how much healing was a part of their work by necessity and but and how deeply they lived it they lived like a healing centered focus in everything they were doing was really really inspiring to me and i was so i was so i've been so grateful for that experience and and that i think has continued to to shape my work is seeing that 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 those things are one that you can't you cannot i mean i already knew that intellectually but like to see it that like you can't do change work if you're not doing healing work like those they're the same thing and i think that's that's shaped this manuscript that i've been working on too it's like you can't you can't have one without the other and and really looking at the other side of that that like you you actually can't have healing happen if you're not thinking about justice and change as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I would love to dive right into that. And we, we can do that through the lens of uh, your book, uh, Healing as a Contribution. We also, yeah, I mean, we can start there. I don't want to throw too much your way. So yeah, how is healing connected to justice in, in the way that you write about it and the way that you've already teed it up and are, the way that you see it? Yeah, thank you for asking. I am practicing I'm still practicing talking about the book in concise and clear ways. <laughs> but I I think I'll say, you know, especially early, there's there's a bunch of books actually that have come out in the last couple of years that are very much aligned with mine, which at first I was like, God, like people are going to steal my ideas and stuff. But like, I'm totally over that now. It's beautiful. People are really a lot of people are are lifting up this this conversation in a beautiful way that that these things are really integrated. Like there's a book, Inflamed, Carrie Kelly's recent book, American Detox, Gabor Mate's new book, The Myth of Normal. Like like there's a lot of those themes in in what I was what I'm working on too. And what I was frustrated by, especially early on in my healing journey, was that the whole healing wellness industry medical industrial complex is is so gaslighting it's like if you do these things you will get better mm-hmm. <laughs> and as so many of us know that's not true mm-hmm. and and i just wanted somebody to say that and i also wanted somebody to say like like you you are not like a it's not your fault 
and be like, you are a product of your environment. And, and just like really wanting to look at, and, and I, I, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this in, in his new book, how like you can see in the, in the telomeres, in your DNA, the impact of, of our social problems, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's real. <laughs> it's not, it's not just something that, that like organizers say, you know, that like oppression has an impact on our health. Like, like it is, you know, through epigenetics, we, we really know this to be true. And so I want like, so the book is, I, I say it's a politicized, but lighthearted guide to the mental, emotional and spiritual aspects of healing chronic illness. Because even just those aspects of healing don't get enough attention. And part of what I'm trying to bring to it is like, you you need to always, well, I guess that's, I don't want to say it that way, but successful healing is always personal and collective. Mm-hmm. And so even that, even just like, and that could mean even just bringing other people into your healing. I think one of the things that is so devastating for so many people with chronic health challenges is the isolation. And it's so easy when you're isolated to just look at like everybody around you who gets to do all these things that you don't get to do. And like, I, you know, I, I, this has happened to me too. Like when <laughs> I, I, I feel embarrassed admitting this, but when we all went into lockdown for pandemic, part of me was like, now y'all know what it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, so, like some of us have been living this way for years. Like, and yes, I will teach you how to use Zoom because I have been using it for years. But um, like, yeah, it's 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 so easy to become really disconnected, which is the opposite of what you need in healing, right? Connection, like healing is connection and healing, you know, there's, there's I can't remember her name right now, but there's a quote like healing happens in community. And and I just, I know that to be true in, in so many ways. And so just wanted the book to 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 facil- help facilitate that for people so it's like it's like half of a how to like how to heal and i talk about you know diff- like how to train your brain how to get in touch with your intuition i talk about polyvagal theory and the nervous system because it's really yeah. important for people to have some awareness of that and yeah like mike the other day i introduced my therapist to polyvagal theory wow and I was like, I understand that you don't know this. And like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I mean, like, I have a friend who's a therapist, and they didn't even talk about trauma in his program. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so so that's, that's some of the stuff I talk about. But I also talk about how do you enroll support? Like, how do you create a team and a community? And, and how do you how do you notice where oppression lives in you? Mm. And and really deprogram that as part of your healing. And and that's where that's like a big part of healing being a contribution, right? Yeah. When you when you are doing that work, you you liberate yourself and you can you can be more successful in creating liberatory communities around you and liberating others. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. I'm gonna invite you to go a little bit deeper on on some of this because I I think it could be really valuable for me and for the listener. And I, I would say one an immediate reflection I have before the question is that when you talk about healing as an individual, but also as a collective, there's I think there's multiple ways that we can look at this. And, and one of them is that if you really embody the healing work that you're doing, 
or if I speak about myself, I know that when I am embodying my healing work, then I am more settled, my nervous system is more regulated, that whether other people I encounter are conscious of that or not, we are always kind of meeting each other where we are. So just like being around other regulated nervous systems helps to settle us down. Or if we're around other dysregulated nervous systems, something's going to feel wonky and off. So mm-hmm. there's there's always, no matter what, even if you're not consciously creating communities or actively creating something, if you are doing the healing work and are social in any way, are able to meet other people, there is a naturally compounding healing effect that I have seen it to have that is, I think, worth naming in this conversation. It, can, it really makes a giant impact. And we all feel it when the energy is off of a room or if the energy feels settled. I think I've heard people who haven't done any inner work talk about the, the energy of the room. And so I think we, we all it, can intuit what this means. I, I would also love, you know, you talked about dorsal at, at one point and polyvagal theory has come up. I would love to hear you speak a little bit about, maybe not, you don't need to go super deep into it, but I would love to hear you talk about polyvagal theory, the nervous system and what that means in terms of yeah, regulation with yourself, with clients and communities, any, any way that you see fit. Yeah, thank you for that invitation. I've been trying to to do a deeper dive on polyvagal theory recently to make sure that I really know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I I I had written a chapter about it and I realized that it wasn't very clear or very accurate. But uh and I haven't read Deb Dana's book. It's next on my list and my understanding is that that's one of the best sort of introductions for folks. I've been reading a book that's for practitioners called I think it's called Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve by Stanley Rosenberg. Mm. And he actually, he goes really in depth about like, this physiological state is regulated by not just this part of the vagus nerve, but these other cranial nerves. And he provides like ways that you can, exercises that you can do physically or with other people to uh, to get back to, to the ventral vagal, which is the state of social engagement. Yeah, what can I say about that? I mean, I think for people with health challenges or mental health challenges, this is like the key that unlocks 7 million doors. You know, and like when I was explaining it to my therapist, she totally got it. She's like, forget mental health. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Because like <laughs> when you see it through this lens, you can see that like, People who, you know, have been taking pharmaceuticals either for physical or mental health for years might actually be able to shift their experience with just like a few like physical manipulations, Uh, like, you know, massaging a certain part of their chest, for example, or like turning your head back and forth a few times. It's not quite that simple, but like pretty simple stuff. So I guess... Like, should I give like a quickie overview or like what, what do you think would be? Yeah, useful? I think it could, it could, it doesn't have to be technical terms necessarily, but I am okay. super fascinated by, and I think everyone ought to be fascinated by how, how can we be regulated so that we're able to more able to show up to life basically. Right. So mm-hmm. like what, what is happening internally if we're reactive and triggered, how can we get back to being settled? Like what, what does all of that look like? So it doesn't, 
if you feel more comfortable just explaining how what that looks like to you than to talk in polyvagal theory, I'm certainly open to that as well. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I guess I can say like, so there's like our state of social engagement, which is our, this is, which is like where we want to be, right? It's like our, our, where we, where we, the place in which we, the physiological state in which we perceive safety. And then there's, there's fight or flight. And then we'll say there's, there's freeze. And then there's like deep, deep freeze, a shutdown collapse mode. And so you, if there's too much activation in one part of so there's like the two parts of the vagus nerve and the sympathetic chain. And so if you're, if you're, if there's too much activity in one part of the vagus nerve or in your sympathetic chain, then you can be sort of stuck in shutdown collapse or in fight or flight. I, in, I know in my body, I have experienced both and I have experienced a ping ponging between the two or like, or like just between all three, <laughs> it's like, everything's good. Everything's feeling great. And then all of a sudden my heart rate's way too high for, and I don't sleep for a month. And I feel like everything is like, I'm just like jumpy and so sensitive and everything's so hard. And then I'll like, you know, I, I've also experienced the deep freeze, the shutdown collapse, which in my body doesn't always come with depression, but can come with like this really heavy feeling this, when that happens, your muscles become really slack. So doing like even like raising my head, my hands above my head to to do my hair becomes impossible. Like I had really short hair for seven years because I couldn't hold my arms up long enough to like brush my hair. And I and I and now know that that's from from too much activity in dorsal vagal, mm-hmm. which is really really interesting. And and I think that there you know there's things that we can do in a in like a everyday setting where like, okay, I'm, I'm noticing that my heart rate is high, that I'm feeling really activated, then you can, you know, I, I think breath work in particular is is really, really such a good tool, both for upregulation and downregulation. And it's, it's so nice to have access to those tools. And what I've found is that for some people, like, and in some cases, like, that just really doesn't work. Like that's something that I've really learned in the last year since vaccine injury is like all my all my tools, everything I learned in yoga, everything I learned about breath work, like I couldn't really access it. Or like it would work for a little while and then and then it would and then it wouldn't be working anymore. Mm. So I think I I guess what I want to name too is like it's really good to learn all that stuff and it's really important or not really important, but it can be really useful to bring in professional support. And there's two kinds that have been really useful for me. One is is working with a somatic coach. And one of the ways that they talk about it that has been really useful for me, especially recently, is there's the autonomic nervous system, which is involuntary. And then there's the voluntary nervous system. There's like all the resiliency that we can build up consciously to support us so that when our nervous system has a reaction, we we have tools that we can that we can bring to it. And some of that's just like, you know, can be like really grounding yourself by taking in your space, feeling supported in the chair, you know, standing in a certain way that your muscles are activated so that you feel strong and don't feel as permeable. I mean, I'm I'm not a somatics professional, but there's like so much great stuff out there that's that's can be so useful for people that have experienced trauma 
emotional or physical trauma, right? So like the 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 vaccine was like this like acute physical trauma. It actually did the same thing to me that like a concussion would do. Mm. And I just I found all those all those tools so useful and continue to find them so useful. And then I recently embarked on this journey with a someone who's a craniosacral therapist, a physical therapist. They do visceral manipulation, all different kinds of body work. And she helps me realize that there, because of an old injury, which this might be like the root of all of my health challenges, there are many parts of my vagus nerve that have literally been pinched for like 20 years. Wow. <laughs> and she's working on like bringing my body back online. And it's been, it's been an incredible and amazing and humbling experience. So like, yeah, like all the breath work, all the regulation exercises, it's amazing. And if you're, if you're in my situation, like <laughs> there might be an opportunity for somebody to, to like help you on a physical level so that your nervous system can actually function properly. Hmm. The two things that I would love to maybe underline slash add here, and then I would love to hear a little bit more from you. So practices that I have found very personally helpful, and, and we were talking a little bit before we jumped on here about My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. And he's got lots of great uh, body practices. And one of, well, several of the things that can be really helpful, and granted, I don't do all of them all that often, but there's chanting, uh, humming, you can mm. move like ankle joints, knee joints, hip joints, like moving your joints can really help loosen up the body. Mm -hmm. Uh, breath work and orienting yourself, which you named, right? Orienting yourself to the room and like kind of making sure your mm -hmm. hips move and your your psoas are rotating and seeing what's behind you. <laughs> I can't believe how much safety that helps to establish and how settling it is for my nervous system when I'm in moments like that. Mm -hmm. And I think something else that I'm wanting to underline in this moment, which you've done a beautiful job of articulating, is that anytime that someone is super prescriptive or dogmatic, to me, that is a red flag, a major red flag about mm -hmm. like this thing. If you just do this, this is going to work. And I have so been guilty of that. And part, it, it usually comes from a really good place because there have been so many things that have made a, a big difference for me and they've made an impact and I want to share that with people. But the more that I dive into the work, the more I realize that every single person is different. And, and in your personal story, hearing that the vaccine really caused a, a lot of damage for you, I think that that's going to activate a lot of people who are you know all about medicine and are yeah, doctors and <laughs> And I think that it's it on the other side, there are people who are all, you know, all about natural healing and think that medicine is evil. And I would really I want to underline again that anytime someone is only looking from one side of things, it's usually very incomplete. And uh, I really appreciate the way that you have been naming that there isn't you you have done what has worked for you and that isn't going to exactly work for other people. But we're talking about so many different principles and practices that can be applied and, and tried on. So to that end, now I arrive at a question. Is there, are there any other practices that we haven't already named that you think are helpful 
in terms of regulation. And, and another one maybe that I'll name is going for a walk outside and being immersed in, in nature, getting sunlight. But any any other practices that feel that you feel called to to bring into the conversation? Yes. Can I speak to something that you said a minute ago and then come back to that? You sure can. Okay, thanks. Because you're, I think what you're naming is is how much, and I don't know how much this is an American thing or a Western thing, or maybe just how our brains work, but people love binaries. Yes. They love them, <laughs> especially on the internet. And I think like one of the beautiful things that that both queerness and chronic illness have taught me is that binaries are not real. <laughs> They're just not. And and I think that something that's so helpful in healing, and I mean healing in every aspect of the word, collectively and personally, a really important aspect of healing is is understanding that there are complexities and that there are gray areas and that there's no you know yes or no answers and there's no binaries. So I just wanted to name that because I think that in itself is a practice, and I think living into that is a practice for a lot of people because. I mean, there is a certain a certain element that like our brains just like to create binaries and especially like our, our limbic system is like, you know, it's this or this. So I just wanted to name that. <laughs> and so grateful to the queer community, especially for showing me just how untrue that is. And then in terms of practices, I mean, I think I think that down regulation practices are kind of overemphasized. So I think I want to talk about upregulation practices. Sure. So bouncing up and down, it's pretty simple. It's really, really, really good, right? So you can just like, if you're able to stand, you know, stand with your feet flat on the floor, bend your knees a little bit and just just kind of start, start jiggling. That's a really, that can be really good. And then more active breath practices, like, like breath of fire, certain like a lot of people love Wim Hof. It's a little too much for me, but like I respect it as a practice. And yeah, singing, humming, and and just like just movement in general. I've been getting a lot out of dance mm-hmm. lately. Even though I've been practicing yoga for I don't know 12 years or something, I notice, especially in this process of of with this body work that I've been getting, it's easy for me to say like, okay, I'm going to do these poses because that's what I'm used to. But like that might not actually be what my body wants. Whereas if I'm if I'm dancing by myself, I can really and, you know, authentic movement is, is another good practice for this. But I can really feel into like, actually, I just want to explore what it feels like for me to move my arm this way um, and just and just like focus on that for a while because there's no prescription. So. Yeah, so I think and I think that like dancing can be an upregulation practice. I think even for people who might be bedbound or really limited in their movement, I mean, you can dance with your fingers mm. and like even just like listening if you can tolerate it like listening to like dance music and imagining yourself moving like that. I don't know that there's science behind that, but I believe that that can support people you know, to, to get into a different, different physiological state. But I mean, any, any kind of exercise in general can support you to get out of shutdown collapse and back towards ventral vagal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what you described at the end there is a different form of visual visualization, essentially, right? If you imagine yourself moving, there's, there's probably a mechanism Mm -hmm. in your mind that 
makes it in, in the way that if I were to close my eyes right now and imagine that I was eating a scoop of ice cream or something, I would imagine that there would be some sort of dopamine response in my brain and that it would it would activate some pathways that are similar to the actual experience of in in your example would be dancing and my example would be eating the bite of ice cream so that is a really effective way to enroll the mind in the process even if you are bedridden like you said and oh man there's so so many directions that we could go from here one question that has been on the back of my mind for much of this conversation so i'll invite it in now is intuition has come up several times and i'd be curious to hear i don't know have there been choice big choices that you've made in your life based on intuition i imagine it's yes and if so Mm. what what did it look like what did arriving at that choice look like for you and even more specifically maybe it was something that it felt like, oh, no, that can't possibly be what I'm really wanting, right? Like the maybe the mind was having a tough time computing how that would happen or some, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I know that's happened a bunch. I'm trying to think of a, an example. A small example is I really, so Resma Menachem, since we've been talking about him, created this somatic abolitionist course. And when he was running his first cohort of it, I was trying to decide whether or not to do it. And part of me was just like, heck yeah, like I love his work. I'm definitely going to do it. But I think I was struggling because it was like a pretty big time commitment. And like, I think it was like nine months. It was pretty significant. And I, I was struggling with it. And I asked actually our, our friend Nick Shrewsbury, I believe, to just kind of hold space for me to get clear with myself. And, and it was like, it was a hard no. And that was sort of surprising to me. And, and I was sort of asking my intuition why. And, and it, I was getting this message that like, I really just like other things were going to come up that were going to need my attention. And I needed to not be immersed in anybody else's stuff. Anybody else's like, I don't know, frameworks. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of, it was hard for me to believe that. And then, okay. So I told you what happened when I took the vaccine, the, I, I was trying to decide whether not to do the booster and my intuition was very clearly like you should get the booster and you should get the moderna and you should like talk to this doctor to get advice on how to do it and i did that and i did it and it was fine so (laughs) i mean those are those are like a couple examples deciding whether or not to go to grad school deciding whether or not to move i mean yeah i i use it a lot Mm. yeah those are great examples i appreciate that so Something that we have we have been speaking about, but I would love to hear you explain even more, is the implications that healing work and, and somatic work, all the work that we've been discussing, just how that can really make an impact on social change, how it can disrupt our thinking around binaries, but just like what what's the level of import of, of this work in your estimation? The level of import. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I've been talking about Adrienne Brown so much, but she's coming to mind again because of she talks about how about the importance of stories mm-hmm. and how, you know, we can live inside of stories that other people created, which is like one way to think about the systems that we live in. And 
I think the the importance of somatics and intuition is is coming back to our own story mm-hmm. and being able to see what our own story is. And then I heard Dara Sohei on a pro on a podcast talk about the four pillars of attachment being the body. I think I'm going to get this right: the body, the divine, ancestors, and the earth. Mm. And I think that only by coming, like only by like fully embodying ourselves, you know, being being in our bodies, being connected to our intuition, which I, I consider intuition to also be connection to those things too. Like that is how we live in right relationship. Mm-hmm. Like when when we when we are even just like a little more embodied we can it's more it's easier to to you know love and respect other humans to love and respect the earth to be in touch with spirit and like i really want to emphasize that like it's not like there's this like like oh i have to be fully embodied or i'm fucking it up like <laughs> even just like a, like if everyone in america was even just like a fraction more embodied like i don't think we would be having this like devastating political divide that we are experiencing right now. Like we're recording this before the midterms, right? And like, I think a lot of people are just like, ah, like, don't look, don't listen. It's so blah, like, or like they're totally checked out. And and I think that that that, that, that the, the crisis that we're in is, is a crisis of, of being disembodied. And, it's, and when you're disembodied, it's really easy to, to be enrolled in other people's stories, to be enrolled in the story of the zero sum game, for example, which is like, you know, I think like Heather McGee wrote this amazing book, The Sum of Us, about how basically all of our social problems in America are come back to racism and to this zero sum story that like, if these people get what I have, then I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And it's totally a lie, but that's like why we don't have health care and like why we have a housing crisis. And yeah, that was that was more than you asked me for. But I uh, think that's my understanding. It was not more than I asked you for. Yeah, I I wanted to know the why why this work really is so important to you. And and part of that question, at least my intention with the question, was to understand what's what's the impact on a societal level that this work can have, even if we just embody a tiny bit more, like you invited us into. Yeah, and I think um like I I I I still like even like in the last few years got sort of caught up in my own personal crisis, like working with people one-on-one isn't enough. Like, like you were saying about like making a bigger impact. I was like, I, I got to work on policy. We have to have like interdisciplinary, like healing centered trauma informed policy. But this, this really incredible organizer, Latasha Brown, people don't know who she is. You should look her up. She co-founded Black Voters Matter. And I got to have like a 15 minute conversation with her. And one of the things she said is she's like, do not, do not underestimate the power of deep versus wide. And she said, you know, the river is filled drop by drop. And like, I really encourage you to like, give yourself permission to do this work with people one-on-one because like, it's like, we need this too. Yeah. And that's just, I was like, oh, okay. If Latasha Brown says so, then like, <laughs> then I'm good. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's been helpful. Mm, I love that. So there's... A lot of the things that we have discussed today can feel heavy, right? They can feel, and, and we've even named that a lot of times with 
healing work, there there's parts of our journey where we're like, oh, how much longer do we have to do this? How long is this going to take type of energy? And Adrian Marie Brown, I, I want to invite her into the conversation even more. She wrote a book called Pleasure Activism, which I see right above you. I, I know that you and I have both read. And you also have, I don't have the full quote written down, so please forgive me. But you have on your website, there's a question that you ask something along the lines of, how can we all live our lives with as much pleasure as Lizzo lives her life with? And it's a long-winded question asking, basically, how can we address all of these giant things, but also without undermining joy and pleasure? And, and maybe even more specifically, why is it important to experience joy and pleasure while doing this type of change work? Mm. I feel like I'm a hundred. Well, I'll, I, yeah, I feel like I'm not an expert on this. Like I'm very much still a baby in the like, in the yeah. I think the the Lizzo quote is is about like loving yourself as much as Lizzo does, and I think pleasure and loving yourself are go hand in hand because part of part of allowing yourself to ha- you have to love yourself enough to allow yourself to experience pleasure to prioritize pleasure. I think like I, I historic, like I'm a workaholic in recovery. I, you know, because like I got sick and I couldn't have, you know, drugs or alcohol or any, like not even coffee for a while. I, my addictive personality was like, I'm going to work all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and then, and it was like work all the time. And then like, you know, spend all my money on medicine. And so like, also, I also got into this pattern of, of really depriving myself and like really withholding pleasure because it was Mm. like the most important thing is to like grow my business and like get better and there's just like no time for anything else which as you can imagine is like a terrible way to live (laughs) I was not a happy human and so yeah I mean I think pleasure again is 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 integral in healing and change because those are the same thing (laughs) but I just also think it's our birthright and I think that like it's part of being an embodied being it's part of being in connection it's part of being in right relationship is is experiencing pleasure and like experiencing the pleasure of being alive and i think that's that's part of how i came back to it was spending more time in in the natural world spending more time in the woods specifically and just allowing myself to be in awe mm-hmm. and the pleasure of being in that awe like holy shit i got to see a barred owl like how cool is that and like mm-hmm there's a bunch of turkeys in the trees, like, (laughs) wow. And like, you know, look at the, I feel like I'm just wanting to talk about birds, but like, or the the river, like I, I live in a town, there's four rivers here. And just like, just being in the river in the summers, watching the river, seeing like, like the, just the power of water. Mm -hmm. And like, there's so much pleasure for me in, in that. So I guess those are some of the things I think about. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Noelle, as we move towards the back end of the interview, I, I want to invite in maybe a, a couple of other things you can you could take it in any direction you want to. But mm-hmm. writing as a, a form of healing is something that you mm. teed up to discuss. Let, let's actually just go with that. That seems very alive for me too. I have found writing, especially in the past couple of years, to be immensely healing for me. And whether that's journaling or me just 
putting thoughts out that I'm going to eventually share with the world. Could you speak about why you feel writing is so important personally for you and and why it's healing? Yeah. Well, I run a semi-regular writing salons and would love to have you sometime, mm-hmm. Mike, if you're a writer too. And yeah, I I wrote a lot when I was younger and I had some lovely teachers who told me that I was a great writer and, you know, I journaled and I, I, when I was little, you know, when, you know, you're in kindergarten and people ask you what you want to be when you grow up, like I wanted to be a children's book author. I just, I was like, I'll draw the pictures and write the story. It'll be so great. (laughs) And then I guess in part because I got sick and I was all like on this like activism organizing kick, I just didn't write for like 10 years. And then I was, I got a scholarship to attend a week-long workshop for, it was like, I think it was writing for people with chronic illness or something. And I met someone who's now my, one of my best friends in the whole world there. So that was amazing. (laughs) She's a writer too. And, but I was just like, oh, writers are my people. Writing is my thing. Like, how did I forget? And that's in part because it, it was such a healing experience. We did this this cool thing where we, coming back to the, to co- Katina Macris was one of the, the co-teachers, and we were writing through the chakras, the chakras, and which is like <laughs> pretty intense thing to do. I like, like, so, you know, like, like uh, sexual assault I had forgotten about came up, like all kinds of stuff came up. And the, so going through the chakras was paired with this um, approach to writing called gateless writing which is really focused on supporting people to write from kind of their deepest, their deepest well, like their most authentic voice. And part of how that's done is it takes the sort of patriarchal criticism model and turns it on its head. So when you are giving feedback about people's work, you're really just focusing on what's working in the writing. And so as a writer, when you're hearing that, and that's what you're hearing, you naturally write more towards that. Mm. Um, it's almost like a peer pressure thing. It's like, oh, people like this. So <laughs> but because people know that they're not, I think this is how it works, because people know that they're not going to get criticized, they write their about their deepest stuff. And so sometimes that's like dark, dramatic stuff. Sometimes it's like, it just like sounds like it's like channeled from the divine. It's like so beautiful. And so I've been running. So I I got trained in gateless writing with Suzanne Kingsbury, who created it. She's amazing. Also chronic illness survivor. And yeah, so I started my, my salon, I think in like May of 2019. And, and then we did it in person in Boston and then online through the pandemic. And it just, it continues to be such a healing space. And I mean, healing, like in every sense of the word, like it is a place for people to process just like what's going on in the world, but just like whether people have writing experience or not, like the writing is so beautiful every time and so powerful every time. And I think that it's because, you know, people, people are just like, it's just expression. And I think expression, I don't think this is talked about enough. I think expression creates connection. Oh, yeah. And and expression is also a portal back into our bodies. So there's a way in which writing can create embodiment. And I like to combine the two. So like in our writing salons, we'll like have a dance party and then we'll sit down and write. And <laughs> and it's just the best. I just love it so much. And yeah, I mean, there's a way in which like 
writing in the salons and writing my book has has been immensely powerful for my healing. And and I think to I think part of it is also being heard. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I've I've done the salons where I have shared what I've written and I've done it where I haven't shared what I've written and it always feels better when I share. Like there's something about about being witnessed in that. It's part of the healing and community thing. I think it just creates another possibility for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would love to hear you quickly. That's actually exactly where I want to go. Just talk about uh, maybe other communities that have been integral for your healing or or if nothing comes to mind, just why you feel that community has such a wonderful impact on on our healing. Yeah, well, I'll say like something... Yeah, I think I have a couple thoughts. So I think a lot of people go to activism because they're looking for a community. Mm. And then they, you know, I think this is getting better all the time, but I think there's a lot of disembodiment and therefore toxicity in activist communities. And that's a bummer. And I think I've seen the same thing in support groups for people with health challenges. Like people go there for a community. And then if it's not well facilitated, or if it's not facilitated by somebody who has some sense of embodiment, it's like really toxic and traumatic. Like if anyone's ever been in a poorly run Lyme disease support group, like, ooh, it's so bad. But if it's well run, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like my my friend Carrie Ann Lang runs incredible support groups for Lyme, for long COVID. She runs art therapy groups. Like there's definitely really good resources out there. So if any of your listeners, you know, are looking for that kind of community, like it, it does exist, I would just say like, you know, use your intuition. Is it a good yes. fit for you? I think one of the place where I really learned about healing happening in community was Afroflow Yoga, mm. which started with Leslie Simon Jones and her husband, Jeff Jones, who live in Boston. And I mean, it's a, so it's Afro-Caribbean dance plus yoga which in itself is really healing and beautiful, but, but they just, they just facilitate an incredibly healing container. Like they do introductions at the beginning of every class. Everybody knows who's there and there's a community announcements. And so it's like, it's like this beautiful combination of, of embodiment, of spiritual connection, of, you know, human to human connection. And yeah, that like, they really set my healing journey on fire. I don't, I don't know if I'd be here today without that wow. influence. Wow. Well, Noel, before I ask just a few more questions, is there anything that we haven't discussed so far today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? Any threads you'd like to close? Uh, anything at all? Not that I can think of, Mike. I got to talk about a lot of the things I'm excited about. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's uh, I've learned so much in the conversation. And like I said, just a, a few more things for you. These are more rapid fire type of questions in nature. They do not have to be you take as long as you want answering the question. But what is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? I don't know, but I've had the opportunity in the last year to spend a lot more time with kids. Mm. And I think just getting to hang out with young people and see the world through their eyes and hear their silly jokes and hear their questions and their interests has really been lighting me up lately. Uh Beautiful. What feels maybe most at your edge these days or what what's uh, what's most alive for you as as an area for development or growth? 
I mean, I think sticking with the book <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah, and coming back to it again and again, probably because I'm, I'm been working on it for, a, for many, for a few years now. And at this point, somebody's helping me edit it. And it's just like, it's like staying present to the moment that I'm in and not, sometimes it's easy to like, start thinking about, you know, like turning it into an audiobook or like, mm-hmm. or getting frustrated about how much there still is left to do. So I think coming back to the present moment, finding joy in the present moment. So like, you know, like being like, how cool is it that I get to learn more about polyvagal theory so that I can write a better chapter on it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just kind of re-enrolling myself in the, in the step-by-step nature of the process. Mm-hmm. What is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? I have never seen or read any Harry Potter. <laughs> my for a long time, my version of that was I've never seen or read any Lord of the Rings or any Star Wars or James Bond. I had three, and uh, wow, everyone was everyone was taken aback by all three of those. Yeah, <laughs> but has that changed? I've seen one of the Star Wars. And I've seen one of the James Bond movies. <laughs> I still have a long way to go. I wasn't a big fan of the James Bond movie, but yeah, we don't need to unpack any of that for now. Yeah, um, I am excited for you to see Return of the Jedi, though. Yes. Okay. We'll have to we'll have to sync up, and I'll have to write about it in one of your writing classes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, before I ask the very last question, where would you invite folks to connect with you uh, to see more about your work? Yeah, good question. Um, Instagram's good. I I do have a monthly newsletter. It's it's pretty low key. It's only once a month, and I I share you know a lot of I try to be generous in there, sharing a lot of resources that I create about career development and healing. So like in the one that's going out next week, I offer my five most underrated job search tips, but also podcast episodes about polyvagal theory. And there's a hidden brain episode about emotions and how emotions aren't as fixed as we think they are. So yeah, and the last one I talked about grief and resources for grief. And I've been in an herbal apprenticeship for the last nine months. So I've been sharing a little bit of that. So if any of that sounds interesting, um, the email list might be a good place for folks. Awesome. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, well, the final question that I ask, I'm actually, I'm feeling the temptation to give you a menu of two, and you could choose whichever one feels best. Our shared community friend, Andy Cahill, in his podcast, mm. he asked, what's your fiercest hope for humanity a lot of times? Mm. And so that, that's option one. Okay. And how I typically end my interview is that the podcast is called Mike Search for Meaning. And I ask, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? So you can pick either one of those, whichever feels more alive and would love to hear. Mm. Yeah. Andy also has a great podcast. I love that guy. Wow. Those are both hard questions though. (laughs) (laughs) Take your time. Meaning or fiercest hope. Yeah, I mean, I maybe I can combine them together and say that I think that fierce hope is definitely what gives my life meaning. I think mm. that's what I'm always motivated by. One of my favorite questions for people is kind of just like, what have you been thinking about or noodling on lately? And it's a question I love being asked too. And And for me, I think what I'm, yeah, it's something I've been noodling on a lot for a long time, like, 
growing up in the DC area and sort of being a political person is just like, yeah, like how, how can we get to a place where we can work together to survive the climate crisis? And, and I think for me, like I, I do have a lot of hope that is possible like looking around in the day-to-day it's like you know sometimes more comfortable to just like put my hands over my eyes and just like you know be like la 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 um (laughs) but but yeah i think i think uh i have fierce hope and i i just you know part of the obsession with embodiment and somatics and stuff is like you know assuming that we that we do survive as a species having some resiliency and some capacity to be with the heartbreak that is gonna that is just already happening and an inevitable part of this process and so yeah leaning into pleasure fiercely loving ourselves and each other is 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 my hope and what gives my life meaning Mm. beautiful and i'm all i'm also realizing that I, i totally forgot to bring in an organization that you wanted to raise awareness for is political healers. And mm. if you wanted to just speak about why that, you know, why did you invite this organization? There's so many wonderful ones, but why, what's uh, political healers? What do they do? And just like a, a minute or two about them. Sure. Yeah. So I think like I'm kind of more on this, as I speak, spoken about more on the side of like bringing politics into healing and political healers is about bringing healing into politics and it's an incredible organization run by by BIPOC women and non-binary people and who have a deep history in organizing and in healing both. And they like they launched something called a community protectors program, which I encourage folks to look into. They also run all different kinds of workshops. Like I attended a workshop they did a couple of years ago on on what is trauma-informed practice and how do we bring it into organizing work. Like all the stuff that 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 we a lot of the stuff we talked about today, like how do we bring that into the political space? How do we make sure that people have these skills and tools? So yeah, I, I give to them monthly. I really love their work. Mm. I think they're an incredible organization and I'd love to see more people supporting them so that they can do more. Yeah. It's it's hard to think of something more important. Mm. And uh I think that you could say that about first responders as well, people who are naturally working with lots of trauma, it's so important to be embodied and to be resilient, to be able to to be with all of that, to be with the heartbreak like you named. So Noelle, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and we covered so much ground. I, I didn't know how we were gonna be able to do it, but we we made it happen. And yeah, I, I appreciate there's a, a humility that you bring to this work. There are many times in the conversation where I asked you something and you kind of disclaimed, I'm not an expert, but here's the way that I'm seeing it. And there was also a, hum- a humility in what works for me isn't necessarily what's going to work for you. And I'm also seeing this deep commitment to serve and to, yeah, to heal, to be the best version of yourself. And it's an incredible blessing to be able to have folks like you on my podcast. So thank you for taking the time to be here with me. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm so I'm so grateful for the opportunity and so grateful for you and the work that you do in the world too. And really appreciating this time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening and 
Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.